same as last evening or two evenings ago there instead of trying to answer so many notes the questions in the notes I'm going to try to consolidate them and um, hope that I uh, cover what was behind at least most of the questions uh, witnessing one question had to do with actually a number of them but the term used was witnessing that is if we practice witnessing something isn't that a separation or a split isn't that a kind of a schizoid way of living where you're witnessing someone you're sort of back here that isn't uh, the practice that we've been talking about um, and the term witnessing is certainly uh, a familiar one and you could even use it at the beginning at, le at least regarding our practice because perhaps to begin with everyone is um, s somewhat separate from what they are mindful of but uh, the practice is not uh, is not a distancing yourself from objects uh, in fact, quite the contrary, we've been using the word intimacy. It's that you are participating in what it is that you're observing, but you're able to stay objective or awake or balanced or equanimous in the midst of it. Um, typically, when we begin, there is a fair amount of distance between ourselves and what we think we're observing, underlined think, because what we're observing is colored uh, with a great deal of our psyche. So we think we're looking at something, but it's, uh, it's entangled with our likes and dislikes and preferences and so forth. We're not quite aware of that. People will think that, yes, I'm being aware, not understanding that uh, thought has jumped out and defined the world a lot and then not taken responsibility for that. And then we think we're seeing, but we're seeing something that's a blend of the projections from our background and what's actually there. With practice, that starts to fade away and uh, it becomes much more clear. But then there's another kind of separation and I think that's what the, uh, perhaps what this person had in mind and a few others who had questions that were similar. Um, there is still separation because there's a self-consciousness uh, we're trying to learn how to meditate. We want to be good yogis. We're trying to be meditators. And in the process, uh, probably it's inescapable that there's a separation because we're, we're trying to do something. That tends to wither away with practice. And then there's just seeing. So uh, you have to be where you are. You can't uh, force yourself to dissolve any barriers that you have between the seeing but more and more they start to, to fade away. And then you're in touch with what you're seeing. Of course, the most important thing to see is, is you, what we think of as, you, as me. Um, difference between shamatha and vipassana. Uh, the emphasis in shamatha is on sticking to the object. Let's say what we were doing with the breathing. Uh, staying with it and uh, what you're attempting to help happen is calm. For the mind to calm down. And that's what we did for the uh, exclusively pretty much for the first few days of the retreat. So the emphasis there is on sticking to the object, not so much seeing the nature of the object. And the vipassana, now while you're doing that, you may learn about impermanence inadvertently anyway, and you may have all kinds of other insights and learn about yourself. But officially, what you're doing is you're coming back to the breath. When the attention slips off, you, uh, you return. So the emphasis is on the kind of sticking, sticking to the object, and that brings calm. Uh, and it's with that calm that we then look, as the, the, the looking uh, is a, a more deep, a, a deep seeing into whatever it is we're looking at. 
when we begin to see impermanence, for example, and we'll talk a little bit about that this evening, um, we have an insight into the, the changing nature of whatever, whatever it is we're looking at. Now, the calm that we've developed is part of the insight. In a way, you could say that when we're practicing shamatha, in parenthesis, there may be some insight. I mean, you can't, we're not, the, the world is not so neat and tidy. These are, to some degrees, concepts. And when we're practicing vipassana, parenthesis, there's some shamatha in it because it's the, the calm is in the, uh, in the mind that's trying to see. Uh, healing power and uh, our practice, the healing power of our practice. At one point, the uh, Buddha was asked why he didn't teach more about uh, psychic powers and all kinds of other uh, healings. And he said, if I did that, because supposedly he had full psychic powers, uh, he said, if I did that, I would be like a very bad doctor who treats you and cures you of a minor ailment, but you die of a major one. Uh, nonetheless, there is uh, no question, perhaps some of you have seen it, I certainly have and, and read about it, and it's just, you even know it from your experience, that mindfulness uh, has, uh, is a healing energy. That uh, the breath, as it starts to become more natural and free, uh, has a tremendously beneficial effect on physical health. Uh, the energy of uh, especially a concentrated mind when it touches some part of the body that's, uh, an, that's ill, uh, it has a beneficial effect on that part of the body. There's a, uh, a little book that was um, of a record of uh, yogis who came with serious illnesses like tumors to a Vipassana uh, meditation center in Burma and it's, again it's not a clinic and the practice was just uh, Vipassana but it was a record of over the years of people who had cured themselves or had dramatically improved certain physical ailments. We're not talking about that, we're not fo uh, focusing on that because we're more concerned with the spiritual disease that we all have which is not to say that you shouldn't heal yourself of physical problems, of course, but we're emphasizing what you, you understand. Uh, clarify the fly example. Okay, I'll try. Um, Let's say uh, you've been hearing a fair amount now about choiceless awareness and a being, about being with what's there. And uh, if you're relatively new to that, it must be obvious that um, what we're being encouraged to attend to is what is. That is just what's there. What is, we'll call it for the moment. And you can't I'm sure you must have noticed that the mind wants to escape from what is a lot. It's not, uh, it hears the instructions, but it has a mind of its own. It doesn't want to do what it hears. Okay, so the starting point would be that. That is, there's a lot of um, energy in us conditioning to pull away from things that we don't like, to pull away from things that are unpleasant. The encouragement, all the, the guided meditations and the meditation and the sitting every day after breakfast, they're all one way or another. They're saying what we're developing is an unconditional surrender to what is. We're learning how to uh, stop having all these different preferences as to what we will and won't pay attention to. The Buddha was known as somebody who had mastered come what may seeing, no matter what. He was there, able to look at it. So, the escape from what is, and then we have what we're learning is um, unconditional surrender to what is. And out of that comes a seeing of what is. And it's the seeing of what is that frees you from what is. Or is it, 
any of the, the, the events that, let's say, for fear or loneliness or grieving or hatred, whatever. Uh, it's the turning to, the surrendering to, and the clear and deep seeing of it that frees us. Okay. Now, so we come to the fly on the fly paper. Um, the natural impulse of all untrained flies would be to try to escape from the fly paper. And in the process, they hurt themselves. They damage their wings. Maybe they're no longer airborne, or they crash dive, or what, something. But it's a, they use a lot of energy, and the energy hurts them rather than helps them. Our little Vipassana fly is also stuck, totally stuck on the fly paper. Yes, so the first is the escape from what is. It's a strong impulse in us to get away from anything that we don't like. The Vipassana fly is learning how to unconditionally surrender to what is. Now, uh, let's just look at that for the moment. Because there's a very, I think, a very important point. Uh, it's something that I've seen over and over again in my own practice and, and in listening to other people's practice. The amount of energy that's used in escaping is enormous. Probably you know it. If you think about all the energy that we've used to avoid, deny, repress, explain away, postpone, delay, put up with, all of those are not facing. They're all the different ways in which we don't face what's happening. It takes a lot of energy to try to escape. Okay. What if we, uh, being a wise little fly, instead of... You, uh, exp expending so much energy in these escapes. Now, I guess we have to see that they don't work because I think all along we're doing what we think is best for us. Maybe if we see that fly as it does escape, sort of, from the flypaper. You know, the metaphor won't work completely, so don't. <laughs> Those of you who are, we have some logicians and philosophers here. Go easy on me. Okay. Uh, Maybe this fly sees what has happened, and this other fly is now uh, severely damaged by a, an ineffective way of dealing with the problem. Now, what if instead of wasting all that energy and trying to escape, we turn the energy into looking, into paying attention? Can you imagine the power that you have by not wasting that energy in trying to play games with what's happening to you? That's the whole point. Once the mind becomes that steady and clear, the quality of attention is like a flame. And that's when things can really start happening in the practice. So that's the kind of seeing that, so that fly that allows itself, doesn't try to escape, but actually examines its bondage. It examines what it's like to be caught on flypaper, what it's like to be helpless what it's like to see no uh, assistance around, whatever. And it's out of that clear seeing that somehow magically it flies away, undamaged and glowing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There were some questions on grieving and mourning and fear. Maybe we can put these all together. Um, let's say you've lost someone that you love. What would the full attention to that grieving be like? What would be the difference between somebody who's using this approach and let's say has some degree of maturity with it, which comes from practicing, using it, uh, and someone who doesn't. Uh, we'll make this brief. I know you all are very sophisticated. Not only have we probably all grieved, but we've read all these books about it. And one choice is denial. Denial is what? Not is, uh, they think that denial is a river in Egypt. Do you know that one? <laughs> Sorry, it's so silly, but... 
Okay. And the other is to drown in it. Uh, neither of those are what practice is. Uh, in practice, there would be such total attention to the grieving, the energy of loss, that that's all that's there. When there isn't that kind of full attention, what also is in it is self-pity. Uh, self-pity for yourself because of the loss, self-pity uh, for the person who's left, perhaps you feel of what they're, they're, they're missing, of what they will miss from here on in. But the point is there's self in it. And as a result, the seeing is not full. The seeing is you're not intimate with grieving. You're not intimate with fear. Because what's, ho what's uh, preventing a full attention for the attention to become like a flame or intimate is that there's a part that's held back, which is about me. This is happening to me. And so it isn't just the raw grieving, the raw feeling of loss or the fear. Now, that sounds frightening itself. How, how in the world am I going to do that? Uh, I don't know. It's a combination of motivation and practice. Probably a beginner can't do it. It's too much. These energies are too powerful. And that's part of why we practice. But there's, it, it, we don't have to be perfect. Sometimes that is such a burden. We approach and we do what we can. Uh, but there's quite a difference when that, that part known as me, that element is absent. That's when the magic of the practice starts to happen. That's the real attention. There's no self that's doing the observing or the mindfulness. There's just intimate contact, touching the rawness of whatever it is. To continue uh, repeating pretty much what Michael said last night about fear. Um, a lot of fear begins with thinking. So we, let's say we've been hurt in the past and we're afraid of that happening again. So something that's over, that's a memory, it's not really happening, it's over. And then because of that we imagine a terrifying future event, could be in the next few moments. Both of them are non-facts. One is over, the past is over. It's just memory of something that once hurt us. The other is the imagination that that will repeat itself. Neither of them are facts. D do you see what I'm getting at? If you can look at, well, how is it actually right here? Sometimes the fear just falls away because the soil out of which it comes is thinking. But that's not so easy to do. And so typically we get caught in the fear and then the body is really the place to uh, connect with that energy of fear. And to put it simply, what you begin to see is that uh, fear are very, very strong bodily sensations, as Michael pointed out last night, and disabling thoughts. Now, if there's total attention to the fear, and in this case, let's say you limit it to just the body, the momentum, uh, no, that kind of attention breaks the momentum of thinking. You can't be that attentive and also be thinking. I'm sure you've experienced it even for a few moments when you've had a, some bodily pain and you've really attended to it. In those moments, there's no thinking because you're so concentrated on the physical pain that that breaks the momentum of the thought process. And your concentration can become ferocious, very, very strong. So, uh, again, it would be to allow fear to flower, allow grieving to flower, allow loneliness to flower. Just insert what you, whatever it is, they were all really the same. And I'm intentionally using a positive image of a flower. Um, because we believe in flowers flowering, or in children flowering, things that we approve of. But can you allow something that you don't approve of, like fear or grief, to flower? Probably not. That's not something we want to flower. We want to squash it or get away from it. Um, some years ago, I was in a... Uh, a discussion group that lasted a week. We'd meet for, for three hours every morning, 
uh, and every afternoon with Krishnamurti in New York City. And the way he would work things, there'd be a subject, and you'd um, di investigate and enter into a dialogue, which really meant that you were wrong all the time. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's how he, yeah. But it's called dialogue anyway. <laughs> and so for a week, uh, we were uh, exploring the subject of um, aggression and fear, uh, and anger and fear. And I believe at the end, it was, we were very much talking about fear, because th the two are so related. And the week was over, and it was about um, maybe 15 minutes left, and then everyone would be leaving and catching planes and trains and going back to where they came from. And suddenly, he started to uh, talk about something that seemed like it had nothing to do with what we've been talking about all week. And he, he, said, he started to say, he said, um, uh, y t yesterday or today, whenever, he said, some friends took me into uh, a, a jewelry store on Fifth Avenue, and I had one of the world's most beautiful jewels in my hand. And he put, his, put it in as if he had the jewel in front of him. And he started looking at it. And we were wondering, what's going on here? Who cares about a, ju a jewel on Fifth Avenue? And he said, and it was so extraordinary that I totally attended to that jewel. Uh, I went into it and through it and came out beyond it. And then he quickly did a sleight of hand and he said, he went like this, fear is that jewel. And he took the jewel and he said, fear is that jewel. In other words, the tremendous energy that's, that's trapped in all these negative states becomes liberated when we can observe them and allow them to, flowering here means run their course, tell their story, do what they have to do. Uh, if you've lost someone you love, that has to be expressed, etc. So uh, now another related to this is, is impermanence. Let's see if I I better try and finish. No, it would, if I don't get to these, we'll get to them tomorrow. In the uh, uh, sutra on the full awareness with breathing, uh, as I briefly mentioned the other evening, uh, it reads, one trains oneself this way, focusing on the impermanent nature of all formations the meditator breathes in, focusing on the impermanent nature of all formations the meditator breathes out. Uh, let's take fear for the moment. Let's say you start to improve your ability to not run away from fear, but to actually look at it in a very friendly way. In other words, allow that. Fear is an energy. It's not a thing. It's quite alive and it's moving, which is another way of saying it's impermanent. So you bring attention to an instance of fear. And let's say the day comes where you're really with it the entire time, or as much as you can be. And you see the fear arise. You see it really peak, become rather intense. And then, but you're right there with it. You're moving with it. And then it starts to thin out and suddenly it's gone because it's impermanent and it's empty of self. We'll talk about that in a few moments. So you saw that. Oh, now if you do that a number of times, let's say you begin to see the impermanent nature of fear or anything else, but for the moment let's stay with fear. Can you see how your relationship to fear would change? For example, if you don't see the impermanent nature of fear, it's as if it's forever when it's there. And that's how we behave. This will never go away. It's massive, and I'm going to be done in by it. I'll be finished. It's all over. None of that may be true. Now, sometimes fear has intelligence in it, so let's not get carried away. Uh, you know, if you're right near a, 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 press, a cliff, and, you, and one more step, and you're over, and you suddenly feel fear, and that 
saves your life. That's intelligence, we call that. So that's, or fear about some sensible plans to make about the future. Let's say you've, uh, you start to think, well, you know, Social Security is not by the time I'm whatever, you know, whatever age, they're going to be broke. I won't have anything. I better lay aside a certain amount of money. And maybe fear got you to do that. But then if it goes on and on and on, you know, seeing yourself as homeless, you know, uh, <laughs> you know sitting in Harvard Square with a sign, I'm a v ex Vipassana yogi. <laughs> <laughs> Who was also in Vietnam, and I also, you know, just did everything. Did, did drugs. Uh. Okay, so it can be positive to, for, for fear sometimes. It's sort of tucked inside. Uh, intelligence can be tucked inside the fear, but so much fear isn't. It's just neurotic, and it, it, uh, it warps us, and it, it uh, damages life seriously. So that let's say you begin to see into the nature of fear, and you see it very clear that it arises and passes away. And then maybe an, another time it comes up. It arises and passes away. It arises and passes away. Now, some of it is the frequency of it. Just You're seeing it time and time again. Coming, going, coming, going, coming, going. Uh, if you can stay with it in order to see that, one of the things that starts happening is you start taking the power out of the fear or out of the anger, or out of the loneliness, or whatever it is you want to talk about. And you begin to see, it's not quite what I thought it was, underlying thought. Empty means it's insubstantial. It, it, how could it be a self? It's not there. It was there, and then it's gone. It's, some, it's ephemeral. It's a bit like a cloud. But while it's there, if there's no wisdom, it's like a mountain. So as we become more intimate with fear, we see into it, begin to see that some of its nature is, that uh, an aspect of its nature is that it's impermanent. That has a dramatic effect on helping attachments to fear to fade. Now, it's not just seeing the frequency of it, seeing the coming and going a lot. It's also the quality of the seeing. So that, let's say, if you've been practicing for a while and your samadhi is, is uh, relatively steady, and let's say you've had more and more periods of dropping into silence where the mind becomes very sensitive when it gets quiet as a kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, but a, a rejuvenation, refreshment. And something very, very good happens, healing, when you can uh, soak up silence for a while. That mind that comes out of the silence is more sensitive. So it's not just seeing many, many instances of the impermanent nature of fear, sometimes one is enough if you see deeply enough into it. it. Really, if the mind is that sensitive, then the seeing is more, is, penetrates more deeply, and you get it. You get what fear is, or whatever else is, is. The fading is the uh, 15th contemplation. These two are, uh, it's nice to, to study them together, and. To, uh, I think, to maybe help you with your practice. Uh, as you begin to see impermanence, uh, what starts to happen is attachments start to fade. You begin to see these uh, coming and going over and over again, and you begin to see more deeply. You also begin to see that um, this law of change is independent of our wishes. We have no control over it. It's not something weird that the Buddha invented. It's normal. It's, it's a natural law. Everything is changing all the time. It's not, uh, well, that, that's Buddhism is kind of, kind of pessim pessimistic, and everything's impermanent there. Life is impermanent. It's not about Buddhism. Uh, so as you begin to uh, have insights into impermanence, uh, fading of attachment starts to happen as well. And so that's, uh, letting go comes much more easily. Let's take other examples. I think this is uh, perhaps important to emphasize. Everyone uh, prior to the Buddha and since the Buddha, everyone knows that everything's impermanent. That's not headline news. 
There's been philosophy and poetry and historians, everyone's seen the rise and fall of civilizations and it's endless. Poetry, uh, what's the difference? What does the Buddha add? Now, some of what he added was to reflect on impermanence and uh, that's been done before too. And reflection is something like you begin to, it's external. You see that, um, you look at your dishes and uh, a few are chipped, a few are cracked, and some are already broken and you have to throw them out. They're impermanent. They, they don't have a stable form. Uh, Jimmy Stewart dies on you. He was my boyhood hero. I, just before coming up on the retreat, I had two film star heroes, Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Stewart. I was trying to learn how to be an American. I grew up in an immigrant community. And there are the two sides of me, so you'll understand which one is working. <laughs> <laughs> the nice one is Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> The pain in the butt is Humphrey Bogart. Okay. Uh, but uh, you can use that, and it can be helpful, because there was a, a documentary uh, that evening, uh, after it was announced that he died, where you, you see him and his films, so young and vibrant, and uh, how could he ever die? And then you see other footage, documentary, more of his life, aging and becoming elderly, and then you see real photographs close to the time he died. And, and uh, when you're growing up and as a child, uh, that it's, a, it's not a person that you're watching on the screen, it's a, a personage. You know, some, uh, how could that ever die? Or any famous person. When Krishnamurti died, it had that, I couldn't believe, how could he die? He was just, he knew everything. He was just so, uh, I meant in a good way. <laughs> uh, he just seemed so uh, indefatigable. Uh, but he did die. And so you can take that in and reflect on it. Uh, your own pictures from growing up through high school and so forth, and then take a look at yourself now, or someone dies in the family, or uh, you go back to your old neighborhood and it's unrecognizable. So you can take that in and, and reflect on it. Hmm, everything's uncertain. Things change. And that's very, very helpful. But to me, at any rate, what's distinctive about the Buddha's contribution is that he asked you to turn your awareness on yourself and very carefully examine the mind-body process and to see firsthand directly impermanence at work. Can you see that all those others are helpful too and sometimes uh, liberation can come from a deep reflection, especially if you've been doing other things. But to me, that, I think that perhaps is unique. I, do, I don't know the history of the world. But he was not only talking about impermanence, he was talking about the one who's talking about impermanence is impermanent. It's not just stepping into a stream that's, that's never the same. It's the person who steps into the stream that's never the same, that's never the same. <laughs> In other words, it's, it's all, it's, an, it's a field of constant change. And you learn about it in the most intimate expression of nature imaginable, your own mind and your own body. And what he's saying is that has tremendous, it's a door into, uh, into liberation. So that's why, that's one of the main meanings of insight, is insight into impermanence. Out of that grows started to start with only seven or eight minutes, but I think we have to do a little of it. Uh, this not-self that you hear about, emptiness of self. And, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was uh, one of my teachers in Thailand, um, he would talk about the essence of the Buddha's teaching is uh, finally not to attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. All of the Buddha's uh, teachings, all the many discourses, if you understood to not attach to anything whatsoever as being me, or as being mine, then you understood all of his teachings. If you practice that, then you are, you are practicing all of his teachings. Now, one uh, impermanence and not-self are sort of like two sides of the same coin. It's like uh, a flame can be, well, let's say a, a liquid can, it's got liquidity, it's fluid, but it also has a taste, so you can't separate them. I mean, you can, you know, in a certain way. Well, 
if you get to know impermanence, and let's say you start to watch the mind, and you begin to see images of yourself come and go, notions about who you are come and go, uh, all the, because uh, one way of looking at this is that our sense of self is put together by thought. We've created this enclosure uh, arduously, and we work very hard at it. It's a full-time job. It's our real boss of maintaining, protecting, and enhancing uh, the sense of me. It's the story of me and my life. And we're constantly going on about it, telling that story. If we can't find someone to listen, we tell it to ourselves. <laughs> we call it thinking. And the, some of you know it, you probably have seen a lot of that on the retreat. <laughs> Why is the mind so concerned with itself all day long? If it's so solid and stable, obviously it, it too has doubts. <laughs> you know, it's constantly trying to reassure itself that it is okay, that it's solid, that it's enduring, that it has a soul, that it's whatever you like. But if you, if you observe it, throw away all the ideology, all of it, including Buddhist, and just watch with fresh eyes. Uh, is there anything that you can point to and say, this is me? You can do it, but then it's gone. And then something else, one, one moment you're Adolf Hitler, the next moment you're Mother Teresa. Well, which one is you? Most of them are in between. And so after a while, the whole sense of self starts to change. That becomes revolutionary. You, uh, again, it's, some of it is the frequency of seeing the arising and passing away, the arising and passing away. And some of it is, uh, as you become more sensitive, oh, look at that. It's not a matter so much of numbers, but of uh, depth of seeing. Let's say, uh, you know, if you like, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, I'm on Jimmy Stewart tonight. <laughs> I've seen it many times, I don't know how many times, but I haven't watched it for the last two or three New Year's and Christmases. Enough with Webster Falls, or whatever the name of that town was. <laughs> you know, and uh, he's okay, and he loves the town, and it's a great movie. And uh, I watched it, I don't know, many, many times. But there comes a point where you can't watch it anymore. It's over. <laughs> Do you get my drift? <laughs> How many more times can we keep watching our story? Then I used to be, and I was this when I grew up, and, and but uh, but but now that I'm uh, I'm practicing vipassana very seriously, soon I will be I don't know what. It's the next chapter in the story of me and my life. Okay, that whole thing becomes much harder to give energy to and to sustain once you begin to see what that process is. Um, And it's freeing. Because if it's true that our suffering, whenever you're attached to anything, let, let's go more simply. Let's say whenever you feel any certain suffering, look at it and see if there's attachment there. The teachings are suggesting you will find there is. You're either pushing something away, holding on to something, wanting something to be other than the way it is. And if you look closely, you'll see that the attachment to suffering it's invariably got me in it. That's why, that's what's attached. It's almost as if attachment and me are synonymous. It's me who's always getting attached. It's me who's always wanting things to be different. It's, do you see what I'm getting at? Now, if you could begin to have insight into that process, it starts to deconstruct. You build up the freedom out of your bondage. That is, so the practice is the practice of liberation, through non-clinging. The Buddha talks about that over and over and over again. In the seeing of those moments of clinging, there's the non-clinging and the release in those moments. And so our practice is to take care of each moment that way. That was one of the questions, was about how do you get out of the prison of me and mine. And not by trying to break out, because that's uh, more of the same, but by at least in this practice, one of the main ways is to come to know the nature of your prison really well. 
you may find that the door is open. <laughs> but we never saw it because we didn't look so caref carefully enough. Okay, I'm going to try to finish these. There are two more questions. Um, oh, impermanence. <laughs> the loneliness of practicing as a layperson um, in the world outside, let's say when you leave the retreat, and I realize we, this is a question we don't like to deal with. The retreat is still going on. There's lots of precious time, so don't start going outside. But a number of you have brought it up, and perhaps some of, I've had a sense that at least a few of you have brought it up, is because you're starting to really uh, form a nice, uh, a tender, loving bond to the practice, and then you're starting to think about what you're going back to. Uh, that's a problem I think everyone whose practice has faced, that is, uh, particularly at the beginning. Uh, I mean, it's, it's always, I would say it's forever, you see, because the world is primarily going to be non-meditators. Has that hit you yet? <laughs> <laughs> and if you're also vegetarian, primarily they're going to eat seared animal flesh <laughs> and roasted fish and chickens. And uh, Most of the world is not going to be doing this. So if we don't learn how to live in that world, then we become an extraordinary hothouse plant. Is that what you want? So now part of the problem is, again, if you make non-meditators and then you make meditator, i.e. I'm the meditator living in this ocean of non-meditators, you already have suffering and a problem. The truth is, there's something even more fundamental. We're all just humans. So uh, be careful about this not becoming another identity another identity which you attach to for security and belonging and sangha instead of becoming something that helps you becomes another prison where you use it to separate yourself from everyone who's not in my sangha and even within Buddhism uh, we're all uh, oh you're within oh yeah you're that lineage yeah, they're okay yeah. Yeah. it's not the big vehicle but you know okay <laughs> just got room for one person it's a real small boat <laughs> but you're sincere, you try. Okay. For those of you who knew Mahayana Buddhism. But even within Mahayana Buddhism, you know, in Tibetan, it's amazing. It's like just the way people are uh, comparing Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, and all that, these people are with their, their particular uh, different schools. And the same with the Thai forest tradition. I was amazed at how much uh, sectarianism there is. Um, now, what if you learn how to meditate? That part's fine, but it should help you to be, to be more open with everyone, with people. It's nice when you have company of like-minded, whether it's meditators or not. If you're a golfer, it's fun to have other golfers. You know, whatever it is you like. Uh, but probably there'll be a lot of time when there'll be people, and they won't be necessarily spiritual or meditators or other things, but let's say in particular me uh, meditators. Can you learn to find some way of connecting to people uh, that isn't premised on them belonging to the same club, wearing the same jacket? It's a challenge. See how much the mind is turning it into a new identity and a new way to suffer, a new way to feel secure, like countries, you know, with patriotism and all of that, uh, and ethno ethnic uh, pride. It's people feel secure when they have something to identify with, but then they divide themselves from other people who are doing the same thing. And so we're all dividing ourselves into these private clubs. And when it gets really bad, we call it war. So I'm not saying it's easy, whoever asked the question, and there were actually more than one person, but it needn't be uh, a catastrophe either. Uh, because it should be helping you to, to open and feel um, an affinity with, it, with everyone, really, whether they meditate or not. Um, I think we'll make this the last one. I think this is the last one. 
a few people phrasing it in different way, two or three people, uh, so I'm putting them all together. Uh, this uh, idea of seamless practice, where you go from uh, one situation to the next, exhaling, sitting, going to the walking, exhaling, walking, going to uh, tea time, exhaling, tea time, doing clean, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, how do they put a phrase? Doing that, being mindful the whole day, isn't that exhausting? <laughs> you know, I guess for that person it is. Um, perhaps some of what's going on there is, is again a self-consciousness, a trying to do each thing wholeheartedly. And maybe it's too muscular. You know, it's too grim, too joyless. Uh, when you find that you haven't been aware and fully uh, doing what you're doing, perhaps then that's taken as a defeat or a flaw or your, a poor grade in the course. There are no transcripts here, there are no grades, nothing. It's completely useless to come here. <laughs> There's no cash value, no cash value. I'm sure America will find a way of turning it into cash value, but just right now there isn't. Uh, so maybe some of it is that, or maybe it's a new thing. But I think that part of it is this trying to do it the whole day or all day long. Let me tell you uh, an extreme case, which you may not believe, but it's, it's actually true. This did happen to me. If you don't believe me, check with any uh, authorized Korean Zen monk, and they'll tell, you, <laughs> they'll tell you that this is a tradition in Korea. Um, there were three of us. We went over to, to Korea and we were involved in a, uh, at one point, in a three-month three retreat at a monastery way up in the mountains. And uh, it was hard. Food, everything was different for us. And I, we were relatively new to the, I think I was new to that tradition, certainly. And what we didn't know is that it's a 90-day retreat. On day 45, they have a tradition where you go for seven days without sleep. Seriously. Uh, it's not that you uh, have an option or you write a note to the teacher and say, I'm not into seven days of sleep. You know? <laughs> it's not my trip. Or I'm just going to do two and a half. You know? uh, it's more like U.S. Marine Corps. You will do seven days without sleep. Uh, or, you, or you leave. Unless, some, you know, if you get sick, of course, they're, they're quite sensitive to that. Um, so we were hysterical when we heard the news. <laughs> First of all, we didn't know about it. And we know, it's sort of like, we didn't sign on to this, you know. Uh, and so we had conferences, the three of us, uh, a few days before we found out. And I mean, when we found out, and we had a few days before it started. And we were talking about everything from leaving to uh, uh, just quitting Zen and, you know, anything. But it was, the idea was very frightening. Just, what, seven days without sleep? I mean, the Burmese are bad enough. This is, the Burmese, some, you know, they really, four hours of sleep, cut it down to three, you know. But this was just saying, no, it's just seven days, no sleep, and that's it. Uh, so we went around in it, but we, I think the main reason we stayed was a kind of patriotism for the United States. <laughs> we, were, we were embarrassed, you know, that is, we had our flag and, you know, uh, how would it look if we went home? Yeah, you know, with our head between our legs, unable to do this practice, which the Koreans believe we wouldn't be able to do anyway. And so we were trying to prove it, that we could. So we started. And I would say one of the most unhappy four or five hours in my life was about one or two o'clock in the morning of that first day and night. And all of us, we were miserable. I just... Uh, and the thought of seven days of no sleep. And so the next morning, I... Uh, asked for an interview with uh, the teacher who was a man who was uh, at the time 94 or 96, Hayam Sanim. Uh, he couldn't walk anymore, but he was 
completely bright and fresh. His eyes were always twinkling, and he was having a good time. But I had to carry him into the hall and carry him out of the hall. But he was having a good time other than that. And so I had an interview with him, and I told him about how uh, anxious I was and frightened, and all of us were. And, and so he listened, and then he just laughed, and he said, oh, I did that many, many times. Of course, now I wouldn't do it, but we've uh, done that many times. And he said, um, it's not as difficult as, as you uh, think. The main problem that you have is that you're carrying around the concept seven days without sleep. Okay. That weighs a ton. He says, put that down and just take it breath by breath, moment by moment. Just keep things simple and just stick to the present moment. Take each thing in its turn. When it's time to sit, just, just sit. You've heard all this. It's a very powerful message. Don't, because it's so simple-minded sounding, doesn't mean that it doesn't have profound effects. When you sit, just sit. So you do that. Then when that activity is over and it's time to walk, then you just walk. When the walking is over, you have to go to the bathroom, then just go to the bathroom, and so forth. So we did our best to let go of this concept of seven days without sleep. And I'm not saying it was easy. It was really difficult, all kinds of things, hallucinations and so forth. But it was, we did it. All of us came to the finishing line. Um, actually, I learned a lot. Uh, would I teach it in this country? Of course not. <laughs> Who would show up? <laughs> I'd be talking to myself for seven days. <laughs> okay. So it's a little bit like that and generalize from that. A lot of things in life are a lot easier if you drop the scenario that you have and just focus in on the actuality of it. This is what you have to do right here and right now. Just take care of it. Take care of this moment. And then that has a way of leading to the next moment and the next moment. Turns out that isn't so tiring. It gives you plenty of energy and you even uh, get the job done. Okay. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.